joy uh, to be uh, opening God's Word with you uh, today as we go through this. I'm really enjoying this series, looking at the faith of Abraham, and uh, we're looking at chapter 16 today, and really today we're talking about the difficult work of waiting on God. If you watch my um, uh, What's New video that we send out weekly uh, a few weeks ago, I I was telling you the story of how I've been in this group with uh, a bunch of eight pastors, uh, uh, learning about, um, with Paul Miller, the the author of A Praying Life, he's been teaching us about how to grow um, a praying church, Um, and it's just been such a delightful uh, journey. Um, But one of the things that he got us to do early on is that he said, I want you to come up with a strategy for how to um, grow a praying church. Just put it on an A4 piece of paper and submit it to you and I'll give you some feedback. And there are eight of us and we came up with our our strategy and we sent it to him. And he goes, thanks for sending me your strategies. Um, Just one thing I noticed about your strategies is that none of you included the strategy of prayer (laughs) for becoming a praying church. Isn't that amazing? Uh, a bunch of eight pastors trying to think about strategizing about how to grow a praying church and they didn't include the strategy of prayer. Isn't that astonishing? Friends, uh, if a bunch of eight pastors think they can do a better job than God at getting their job done, then is it possible that you might think that you're able to do a better job than God at getting your job done? Could that be possible? Whether you're retired, whether you're a doctor, whether you run your own business, whether you work for someone else, whether you're a parent, whether you're a grandparent, has it occurred to you that God can do a much better job at all of those things than you can? Please don't limit God's work to the domain of the church or ministers. Please don't limit him to, to, no, he helps with with just ministers and and it's ministers that should be looking to him. No, 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 this is all God's world and he can do a better job than you can at whatever it is that you're doing. Or are you like me and you just find it so much easier to get on with working as opposed to waiting on God? Uh, Jim Simbola has written a book that I've Um, enjoyed during this whole journey that I've been on called Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire. And in it he writes, most ministries in our church have not begun with a bright idea in a pastor's meeting. We usually don't say, let's start a street outreach and then go and recruit lay people to start it. No, we have learned over the years to let God birth something in people who are spiritually sensitive who begin to pray and feel a calling, then they come to us. We want to start such and such, they say, and the ministry gets going and lasts. Discouragement, complications, and other attacks by the enemy don't wash it out. Friends, in our story today, even though God has promised to bring something beautiful to birth in Sarai and through Abraham, literally bring something to birth in Sarai, they just couldn't wait. So they did what we all do, and that is they got to work. What we're going to see in our story today is that getting to work is so much easier than getting to waiting. Or at least... It's easier in the short term. It's much more difficult in the long run as we're going to see in the story because we always make a complete mess of it. 
In Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 to 2, God says, Woe to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. Those who go down to Egypt, but did not inquire for my word. God's saying, when were you planning on asking me about that? Your decisions, that direction that you're taking, these plans that you're making, when were you planning on asking me and inquiring for a word from me about where you're going and then waiting for an answer? When were you going to ask me? Friends, it's not too late for you to start asking to start waiting. I found prayer cards helpful in learning to wait on God before I get to work. I made a quick run through all of my prayer cards and I came up, I found seven or eight prayers about things that haven't even happened yet. Prayers about my planning. Lord, what do you want? Praying about the new rector. Lord, this preaching series that I'm thinking of. What what, what should I say? What do you want us to say? Advent, Christmas. Lord, how on earth am I going to be able to do that with only one, one of me when we used to have three and a half stuff? Lord, what are we going to do for Christmas? Etc., etc., etc. Friends, it's not just spiritual stuff. What are your plans? Are you inquiring of the Lord? It's so countercultural, the message today, because what the world says is that there is no God, and you just, so you just need to get on with it and get the job done yourself. You need to do it yourself. God helps those who help themselves. Isn't that the water that we swim in? But in direct contrast to that, Isaiah 64, verse 4 No eye has seen, no ear has heard a God like you who works for those who wait for you. I found out this past week, Paul Miller, this is his favourite verse on prayer. And you can see why. A God like you, who works for those who wait for you. Isn't that what the disciples were doing in Acts chapter 1? They spent 10 days waiting in Acts chapter 1 for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Come on, Lord. 10 days praying waiting. And then what did he do? He worked. 3,000 people were added to their number that day. They didn't lift a finger. They were just waiting. And he worked. And so today we're talking about the difficult work of waiting on God. And so to start us off, let's look in chapter 16 at verses 1 to 3, or when God has got the slows. I just want you to imagine for a sec that you are Abraham and you're out in the middle of nowhere, you're in your tent uh, and God says, come out uh, and, and, and it's a clear, dark night in the middle of nowhere and he says, Abraham, look at the stars. See if you can count them. Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Can you imagine it? God says, breathe it in. Reach for the stars. Because they're all yours, Abraham. This is your future. That's chapter 15. But then the days roll by. The days turn into weeks. 
and the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years. And then if you look at verse 3, chapter 16, the years turn into 10 years, it says, verse 3. And the reality still hasn't changed. Chapter 11, verse 30, we were told uh, before we meet Abraham, it says Sarai was unable to conceive. And we've got past all this time, and chapter 16, verse 1, is much more blunt and more succinct. It says that phrase, no children. No children. And I found it really helpful to realise that the life of faith is a lot like this hope and reality chart up here on the screen. Abraham and Sarai's hopes were sky high. They were higher than sky high. Reach for the stars, God says. Descendants as numerous as the stars. And so that's the line at the top. But then the reality for Sarai back in chapter 11 is down in the dirt. She is unable to conceive, which is the line at the bottom. And so the y-axis on the chart is about how high our hopes are or how glorious God's promises are to us. But then uh, the x-axis represents the passage of time. And as you can see, the longer time drags on, the greater the gap there is between our hopes and the reality. And what that means is that it gets harder to keep on watching It gets harder to keep on waiting and to keep on hoping and to keep on praying because you can't see that God's at work. But it also means it makes it easier for you to run ahead of God, give him a helping hand, which is what we see Sarai doing in the story, giving God a little bit of extra help. Or it's easy for us to run away from God, which is what we're going to see Hagar doing in the story easier than to stay in that place of the difficult gap between our hopes and the reality. Easier to run ahead or run away than to stay put, watching, waiting, hoping, praying. And so the reality for Sarai in her situation was no children. What's the reality for you? Is it no obedient children? Is it no husband or no wife? What's the reality for you? No minister, no new minister. No health, no job. Friends, I hope you're able to identify with Sarai and Abraham in this story. Eugene Peterson, one of my favourite authors, writes... In prayer, we are aware that God is in action and that when the circumstances are ready, when others are in the right place, when my heart is prepared, I will be called into action. Waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. Waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. It's the difficult work of waiting on God. Much easier to get to work. And so, let's start off by looking at Abraham and Sarai, who would prefer to run ahead of God. Verse 4, it's just striking the way it opens. Abraham went into Hagar and she conceived. 
As simple as that. How many times and for how many years have Abraham and Sarai been trying to have kids? And how many times has God promised them and reiterated his promise to them that they're going to have kids, descendants, as numerous as the stars, and yet, verse 1, no children. Verse 3, 10 years. But when they run ahead of God and try and give him a little bit of help along the way, Abraham went in and a baby popped out. Just like that. So simple. Aren't Satan's shortcuts so simple, so straightforward, seemingly so effective? In Genesis 2, God has made it crystal clear just a few chapters ago, the boundaries for blessing in marriage are one man and one woman in a lifelong partnership to the exclusion of all others till death death do us part, as our Anglican prayer book makes it so clear and puts it so beautifully. And God says, that's the way of blessing. That's the way of flourishing. That's the way for you to be blessed. But Sarai says, you know what? I've got a better idea. Why don't we try one man and two women? I reckon that'll be the better way to be blessed. And if the story ended at the beginning of chapter 4, you'd have to say that they were right. Abraham went in and a baby popped out. Just like that. So simple. God's way obviously doesn't work. It's so harsh. It's so cruel. It's so restrictive. Clearly, this is the way to blessing. And you'd think that they were right. If, you, all you, if the story stopped at the beginning of verse 4. And yet, if you keep reading, you see that it all unravels so terribly and so quickly. When Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked in contempt at her mistress. And then we get all this bickering and blaming and backbiting between them all in verses 5 and 6 in their new marriage arrangement. Just like when Adam and Eve took the fruit in the garden and they were absolutely sure that God was holding back his blessing and that this would be the way to be blessed and then for a moment it worked, but then for generation after generation after generation all the way through down till today, it was a disaster. They thought they were wiser than God. Friends, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature will reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the Spirit will reap eternal life. Galatians 6. And so, as is so often the case, the weakest and the most vulnerable party in this whole setup, Hagar, comes out the worst. And so she runs away, back home, to Egypt. And we'll get back to that in a sec. But as a side note, I just want to note the failure on Abraham and Sarai's part 
to nurture the kind of marriage that would be a blessing to the nations. God said to them, all the nations will be blessed through you. Hagar was from the other nations. She was Egyptian. But here, as they trust in their own wisdom, as they trust in their own understanding, instead of working with God, as they try to be, come up with blessing apart from God's plan, it turns out to be a curse for Hagar. Their marriage turns out to be a curse for Hagar when they're supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And so I think the question for those of us who are married or those of us who are wanting to be married, the question is, does your marriage build a bridge to God's blessing so that people can draw near to God? Is that the kind of marriage that you're building? Or is your marriage more like a barbed wire fence that drives people away, like Abraham and Sarai with Hagar? Father, we would pray that the marriages and the families in this church would build a bridge of blessing so that all the nations can be blessed. Lord, that, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, that our marriages would be a symbol of Christ's love for his church and that all the nations will be blessed. Would you guard them and protect them from the assault that we're seeing on marriage and family? That people may be blessed, kids and many others. Well, friends, let's get back to the text because I want to look now at the Egyptian option in verses 1 and 3 and then 7. Twice it talks about Hagar the Egyptian, verse 1 and verse 3. And I want you to see this amazing parallel between the fertility that we've seen in Egypt in the story so far, chapter 12 and chapter 13, and the amazing fertility of Hagar's womb here. In chapter 16, if you've been with us following the story, you'll know that Abraham, remember, he went. there was a famine in the land in chapter 12. And so he went down to Egypt because it was much more fertile. Do you remember that? And then Lot, when he was choosing where to go, he chose the place that looked a lot like Egypt. And then now you've got Hagar's womb is as fertile as the land of Egypt is. And then in verse 7, It says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, if you look up a map of Shur, it'll show you very clearly, you've got Israel up to the north, you've got the desert and the wilderness of Shur here, and then you've got Egypt down here. So where's she going? She's going back home, where it's more fertile, to Egypt. Ian Duguid says, the apparently insignificant geographical note draws our attention to a continual undercurrent in the story of Abraham, the conflict between the attractions of Egypt and the apparent barrenness of the promised land. So let me give you a quick recap of the Egyptian option so far in the story. We've talked about Abraham when there was a famine in the promised land, went down to Egypt, Right? where it was more fertile. Then in chapter 13, Lot chose the land that was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. That's chapter 13. And now in chapter 16, Abraham takes the Egyptian option. Abraham goes in and a baby pops out. And so the Egyptian option looks like it it works, right? At least for a little while. But it doesn't turn out that way. 
in the long run. Because when Abraham went down to Egypt in chapter 12, he put his wife in danger. Remember, she got married to Pharaoh. And it started to look really hairy. When Lot chose this well-watered land looking like Egypt, he went to live near Sodom. And by the time we get to chapter 19, we see that it really didn't work out well for him. And his wife turned into a pillar of salt, for goodness sake. And now we see uh, in this story, he went into Hagar and a baby pops out, but it ends up in blaming, bickering and backbiting. Verse 12, it says, he'll be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall live at odds with all his kin. And then now Hagar going down to, to, to this fertile land in Egypt, but she doesn't end up in a fertile land. Where does she end up? Where does the Lord find her? In the middle of a desert, in the wilderness. Now most scholars agree that This story was written around the time of the Exodus, around the time of Moses, when the Israelites were always constantly tempted to go back to Egypt. So in Numbers 14 verse 3 it says, they say, they complain, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And Numbers 20 verse 5, they complain again, why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? This is the Egyptian option. It's about walking by sight instead of walking by faith. It's about putting your roots down in this country instead of wandering through like a nomad and living for a better country. So I want to ask you, what does the Egyptian option look like for you? Is it to spend all your retirement in the sun, eating out, Traveling, fine dining, playing golf. Is that the Egyptian option for you? Maybe you're tempted by the lifestyle of your non Christian friends. So called sexual liberties or a lavish lifestyle, just doing whatever feel, feels good. Is that the Egyptian option for you? Or maybe you've entered into some kind of truce with sin where, like Sarai and Abraham, you think you can obtain God's blessing by doing what he's clearly forbidden. And you think God's going to bless you in that setup and arrangement. Friends, you need to remember when the dazzling Egyptian option is being dangled in front of your head that Satan is a liar and Egypt is not your home. And see how it works out for the people in the story. And this is essentially what Hagar said, God says to Hagar in the story. If you look at verse 9, he, brings, he says, you need to go back to the place of blessing. Verse 9, the Lord said to Hagar, return to your mistress and submit to her. This woman who had been so cruel and unkind to her. God says, you need to go back to her. You've wandered off to, onto the wrong path down the Egyptian option. And through God's kindness in the story, we see him reaching out to her to bring her back on track. Verse 7, it says, the Lord found her. Verse 11, the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Verse 13, so she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy, which in the Hebrew could mean either you're the God I can see or you're the God who sees. The God who sees. 
when you can't see what he's up to. When you've been watching and waiting and all you can see is a mess. He's the God who sees. Scholars have pointed out that out of all of the ancient Near Eastern literature that we have on record, this is the only place where the deity has spoken directly to a woman. It's the only place where the deity has spoken directly to a woman. This is not any old woman, friends. She's a slave girl. She's run away from God and his people. She's out in the desert, in the wilderness, all on her own, feeling completely God-forsaken and abandoned. And of all things, she's from Egypt, the enemy. And this is the one. This is the one whom the Lord finds. This is the one whom the Lord sees. This is the one whom the Lord hears. And so if God can do that with an Egyptian slave girl, then surely he can do that with you, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, whatever mess you've got yourself into. Because salvation is not by works. It's by his grace and his mercy. So as we begin to wrap up this morning, John Milton in Paradise Lost describes the evil of history as a compost pile, a mixture of decaying filth such as animal excrement, vegetable and fruit peels, potato skins, eggshells, dead leaves and banana peels. In other words, all you can see and all you can smell is disgusting. But if you cover it with dirt and you let it sit, and you do the difficult work of waiting on God, the soil becomes a rich and natural fertilizer, incredibly fertile for growing fruit and vegetables. The point he's making is that even the worst events of human history, things that we just simply cannot understand, even hell itself, God will work for good like a heavenly compost. Because you know there was another day many thousands of years later after this whole sorry affair with Abraham and Sarai and Hagar when Jesus' disciples were waiting and Jesus' disciples couldn't see what he was up to. Just a few days earlier they had witnessed the greatest evil in the history of the world. Their Lord, their Saviour, And their friend had been brutally executed and crucified. In Luke 24, they say, We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But it's been three days since they crucified him. They'd given up on waiting, they weren't watching. Remember, they couldn't see or recognize Jesus. They couldn't see Jesus, but Jesus could see them, the God who sees. And then when he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then, as they commemorated the greatest evil 
in the history of the world. Then, as they beheld the body broken, the blood shed, their eyes were opened and they recognised Jesus in the elements. Body broken, blood shed. The greatest evil the world has ever seen. You know what that means for us? It means that now we can see with the eyes of faith. We can see that God is always up to something, even in the midst where, we, where it just looks meaningless. Which means that we can do the difficult work of waiting on God. Knowing that he's at work through the eyes of faith. The God who sees, the God who hears, the God who knows, the God who saves. In the words of William Cooper's hymn, God moves in a mysterious way. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to do the difficult work of waiting. Thank you for the confidence that we can have because of Jesus' body broken, blood shed, that even when we can't see, you're at work. So, Father, help us to heed the woe of Isaiah 30, verses 1 to 2. Woe to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. Those who go down to Egypt but did not inquire for my word. Heavenly Father, teach us to watch, teach us to wait, teach us to pray and increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.